Welcome to the SF Weekly Podcast. I'm Nick Veronin, your editor in exile, and I am joined, as always, by Kevin the Chiron Hume. How you doing today, Kevin? Not too bad. How you doing, dude? I think I can answer that um, with a quote from a, from a television program. It goes a little something like this. Philadelphia, yeah, 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 man. Uh, we 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 had a good feeling it was coming. Uh, the you know Joe Biden on on election night was uh, pretty confident, you know, that they were going to get Philadelphia or Pennsylvania, I should say. Um, as of this recording, that is the afternoon of Friday, November 6th, it looks as though Sleepy Joe is not only going <laughs> to not only going to flip Pennsylvania, thanks in no small part to the city of brotherly love, but he is also on track to flip Arizona. You know, that place our lovely president once said was being flooded with rapists, murderers and, quote, a few good people. Uh, <sighs> hell, he, Biden might even flip Georgia. Yeah, which is crazy. Oh. Georgia on my mind. It's my favorite uh. Jamie Foxx song. <laughs> oh man. The only thing that is keeping me from being optimistic about all this is that it's still not official. Yeah. And that, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to remain cautious, uh, cautiously optimistic and not let my heart get broken again, man. Yeah. You, you just reminded me of this teacher I had in high school, freshman math. Um, I don't want to throw the guy into the bus, so I'm not going to say his name, but he was a high strung dude. And he, uh, one time me and my friend Bart, who, you know, uh, we were out in, um, we're out in the parking lot and we looked in his car. He had like a a compact truck, like a Mm -hmm. Nissan or Datsun or something. And uh, on the steering wheel, there was a sticky note and it said, be and remain calm. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the poor guy are you, are you are you saying i'm uptight <laughs> um, i think we all have been high strung with this election yeah. week election week oh do you do the uh, sticky note thing no uh-uh i mean how weird would it be to have a sticky note on my backpack walking around on bart muni <laughs> well i did the keep sticky note calm. thing i did the not not keep calm but like i give myself sticky notes sometimes so joe biden this is exciting not that he's a very exciting candidate by any means but it's like in a year of pandemic civil unrest economic uncertainty and uh, on the west coast in the western united states horrible wildfires it just feels good to know we're going to have a president who uh, might do a little more than our current fearless leader has done when it comes to addressing all the aforementioned issues like with the pandemic i anticipate Biden will do more than just tell Americans to buck up and rub some dirt on it (laughs) with civil unrest. I anticipate that Biden will, and he already has attempt to project some kind of empathy and like seek to bring the country together rather than use the division as a tool to drive campaign donations with economic uncertainty. I would hope that he would push the federal government of the wealthiest nation on the planet to actually use the resources at its disposal to create jobs and provide aid to those who still can't find work. And as for the Western United States, I anticipate that Biden will do more than uh, mock us at rallies and tell us to break out our rakes. So 
It's something to look forward to. Yeah, you know, uh, I think after four years of madness, it'll just be nice to have a boring president again, you know? <laughs> like when you've accidentally, like, eaten something too spicy and you want, <laughs> like, all you want is, like, saltines. Yeah. Yeah. Reach for reach for Biden. <laughs> Big old package of Biden saltines <laughs> is what we need right now. Um, uh, yeah, uh, to soothe our four years of gastrointestinal issues. But anyway, you might be wondering what your nickname was about this this uh, this week. Yeah what what is that Chiron thing? Chiron, Chiron, Chiron. Uh, this is a relatively new word in the English language, spelled C H Y R O N. It is defined as an electronically generated caption superimposed on a television or movie screen. Uh, the, et- the etymology of this word comes from the Chiron Corporation, which is responsible for inventing the devices, which are ubiquitous in modern life. You see them on, you know, newscasts all the time. It's scrolling. Yeah, the, the thing, the thing most uh, editors call like lower thirds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're just scrolling yeah. across there saying like. Uh, Biden has flipped <laughs> Pennsylvania, hopefully. Oh my God. Yeah. I was thinking about Chiron's because, uh, I was swimming in them on election night. I, I kept it glued to CNN. Yeah. I had it on there for a little while before I, I left to go out and do some election night coverage for the examiner. Um, it was like watching a Jerry Bruckheimer movie. I mean, kind of, yeah, except it was just, you know, it just was like constantly playing around with, you know, the maps and where the results are coming in and comparing it from four years ago to today and this and that. And it, I could totally understand why half this, well, basically most of this country is so anxious all the time <laughs> because in the like two hours that I watched that before I left, I just felt my anxiety just rising. Yeah. <laughs> and another great thing happened this week. The print edition's back. SF Weekly on the streets, people. You can go pick it up in uh, those little curbside boxes. I I don't I know uh, I know th- I know what Chiron means, but I don't know the names of those boxes that are on the <laughs> that are on the side of the street. But you know what I'm talking about. The, the, Trump is being a poor sport. Who would have Who would have thought? A- right with that with that press conference yesterday about you know uh you know keep counting where i'm losing and stop counting you know it's the same old shtick from him mm-hmm. where i lost it's illegal and where i won it's totally legal no no holes in that logic um mm-hmm. <laughs> you know None. there was a, a few a few podcasts ago many podcasts ago i think i dropped this quote and it's uh, attributed to ronald reagan but if you're explaining you're losing and right now, that's all I'm hearing from Trump and, you know, his people is excuses and explanations. A few weeks back, I uh, said that I thought, come on, was all you really needed to say to, to Trump supporters. Well, now I think all you really got to say is scoreboard. <laughs> scoreboard. Scoreboard. Scoreboard doesn't lie. It's right there. <sighs> Speaking of scoreboards, the results of uh, local elections in the city the Bay Area and the state are starting to come in. One interesting takeaway uh, on a local level is that uh, a bunch more people voted for Jackie Fielder, challenger to the incumbent state Senator Scott Weiner, than anybody would have thought back in the spring when she yeah. uh, originally pulled papers. Spoiler alert, she did not win, and she didn't necessarily come close. Uh, Scott Weiner beat her by about 10 points, but um, 
she did very well and we probably haven't seen the last of her she's got that bpe man that big that big progressive energy (laughs) (laughs) yeah she's definitely uh made a lot of uh inroads with a lot of people uh that are you know amplifying her message and she's reaching the right you know she's speaking the right language here in san francisco Mm -hmm. uh she's got a she's got a place in the future yeah um were there anything were there any uh ballot measures uh propositions that um you were particularly pleased with their passage or disappointed uh prop 22 yeah me too yeah that one i wasn't super stoked about honestly like uh there was a few of them that were like really like i think there was one about 17 year olds voting yeah i was like why why are we not letting more people have a vote like what the hell Um, oh that's what you thought i mean like i voted for that i was like okay that's fine but like when um like when i woke up that morning and that didn't pass i was just kind of like ah i don't know maybe i'm just a a curmudgeon old man who doesn't doesn't (laughs) care I don't know. I also feel like uh, I live in Oakland and I think there was also a similar uh, measure on the, I haven't seen if it did anything, but I feel like there was a similar measure for the city to allow 16 or 17 year olds to vote for school board. Mm -hmm. And I think that's absolutely something that should be allowed. I think something like that was similar here in the city, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, But yeah, like there were just a few more than a few measures at the state level that I was not, very pleased with seeing results of like that one. Yeah. Prop 22's passage, uh, prop 22, for those of you who uh, aren't fully up on it, or maybe were hoodwinked by the, the litany of commercials thrown at you. Uh, that was basically paid for by Lyft, Uber and DoorDash. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they got what they wanted, you know, coming back to the 17 year old thing. I mean, I think there, without a doubt, it. I am a curmudgeon. Like I, I heard this guy, Alex Lee on the radio the other day, he's this 25 year old from uh, San Jose and he just became California's youngest state legislator. Um, oh, wow. And my God, he was so articulate. Like when I was 25, I wasn't trying to be, I wasn't trying to be a state legislator. I was right. doing stupid stuff and like <laughs> mad that like people didn't take me seriously. And here's this kid, uh, just 25 year old. He's a man, young man. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's putting him, he's going to be a public servant. So that's awesome. Maybe, maybe, maybe the youth is the future. And, uh, yeah, man, Jackie Fielder's 25 too, you know, like, and people can, I don't think age really matters anymore, obviously with a 78 year old, uh, and a 74 year old running for president. Um, but no, like it, it really is inspiring to see, younger people get out there and try to run and 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 win you know like people put themselves out there when they feel like they need to and so you know uh it's inspiring to see younger people try to have a voice like that yeah okay i'm back on board with the 17 year old you convinced me (laughs) too bad it, it doesn't didn't pass um anyway Coming up on the podcast, we're going to talk uh, about more local politics with SF Weekly staff writer Benjamin Schneider. We're going to find out how San Francisco voters have been casting their ballots and unpack our one-party city's progressive-moderate divide. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
We're back with Benjamin Schneider, staff writer for SF Weekly. Well, we're finally on the other side of this year's presidential election, and it appears, at least as of this recording, that progressives, moderate liberals, and a fair number of disenchanted conservatives came out in sufficient numbers to push the 45th president out of the White House. But Joe Biden and Donald Trump were not the only names on the ballot this November. San Francisco, the Greater Bay Area, and California had plenty more decisions to make, from the Board of Supervisors to a slate of propositions to a state Senate race that was a lot closer than anyone would have thought it could be just a few short months ago. And that's why Ben's here, to help us unpack all of that. Welcome back, Ben. Thanks for having me, Nick. Yeah. So uh, the SF Board of Supervisors had a veto-proof progressive supermajority going into this election. That could change as the results of this super close D1 race come in. We're still waiting for uh, all the votes to be tallied in that race. But before we get into the balance of power on the Board of Supervisors, can you talk a bit about what it means to be a progressive and uh, what it means to be a moderate in San Francisco? Well, Nick, it's a doozy of a subject, and I would highly recommend um, if you want to think about this more deeply to check out my article um, in this week's print edition about that really dives into this whole divide and the different dimensions of it. Um, But I think for our purposes here, it's helpful to understand the moderate divide as a sort of organizing principle of San Francisco politics when the city is 90% 90 or so Democrats. So it's a way of sort of classifying um, different politicians in different camps. And they're not political parties as such, but there are ways and moments in which they act like them. Um, And so you can look at politicians who are in office or candidates who are running for office, and generally you can classify them in either the progressive or the moderate camp. Um, And so as for what actually distinguishes the two the two camps, it's not quite as simple as when you look at uh, DC politics and you think of who is a a moderate Democrat versus a progressive Democrat. Um, There's a lot more kind of layers to it um, and and much more kind of local intrigue that informs this particular divide. Uh, But generally speaking, it's safe to say that moderates, um, as you might expect, are are more friendly to big business. um, And they're often also seen as more supportive of small businesses too. Um, And they're more supportive of development and particularly um, housing development at all levels of affordability um, throughout all San Francisco neighborhoods. Um, Whereas progressives, uh, they're they're more likely to um, really take a hard line against big business, um, support more tax increases and more regulations than moderates would be likely to do um, and especially more recently, there's been a litmus test around uh, supporting, really only wholeheartedly supporting 100% affordable housing developments, um, rather than the, the range of affordability levels that moderates would be more likely to support. Okay. So give me an example and give the, the listeners an example, um, if you would, of, of a well-known progressive and a, a well-known moderate or two. Yeah. So... I would say the um, the standard bearers of the moderate faction right now are Mayor London Breed and State Senator Scott Weiner, um, and you know they they check a number of the boxes I mentioned previously. They 
are willing to work with big business and support big business as a means of kind of pushing forward the San Francisco economy, um, although they will sometimes go um, go to battle with them on, on specific issues. Um, and I think more uh, relevant uh, often in, in kind of recent debates is that they're both very uh, supportive of building a lot of new housing at all levels of affordability throughout all neighborhoods. And they've both in their own ways pushed forward uh, legislation, um, Wiener at the state level and Breed at the city level that has tried to move in that direction. And, and so far, they haven't had a lot of luck um, in, in the city. Uh, Mayor Breed has been stymied by pro- progressive supervisors. And at the state level, uh, Senator Wiener has been stymied by uh, Republicans, as well as a lot of Southern California Democrats who, who are uh, kind of wary of, of his, his policy there. Um, and I think that an, a good foil to those two would be Supervisor Dean Preston, um, who, who just appears to be winning a uh, resounding re-election bid, and, sta- and Jackie Fielder, who ran a, a remarkably successful uh, challenge to Scott Wiener for state senate. Um, and I think the two of them kind of represent the vanguard of San Francisco progressivism now. Uh, they're both self-identified socialists, which is a new thing in San Francisco politics. Um, and they, they call for um, things like, uh, you know, multi-billion dollar investments in affordable housing. Um, Jackie Fielder was running on, on the notion of a, a California Green New Deal. Um, these are sort of... Uh, you could say municipal or state level versions of the kinds of policies that someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is talking about in DC. Um, and, and I think uh, there's often a lot of sort of uh, idealism associated with it in terms of how you can get there um, within the constraints of, of budgets, but in a way that's sort of secondary to this movement that um, the two of them are part of and appear to be um, really resonating with a lot of people, even if, um, as I said, Jackie Fielder didn't win, but uh, you know that was expected. She she really kind of changed the conversation, um, even though she didn't win that race. So every major incumbent politician in San Francisco is probably going to win re-election this year. Um, what are some of the most interesting things that happened in those races? Yeah, I think the D five race was particularly interesting. That's the one that Dean Preston is on track to win against former supervisor Valley Brown, who was appointed by Mayor London Breed um, after she vacated that seat. So there's a lot of history there between the three of them. Um, London Breed was also a D5 supervisor before she was mayor. Um, and it, it was a pretty bitter race. There was a lot of personal attacks flying back and forth between the two candidates. Um, but things really got turbocharged when uh, this... this uh, Super PAC essentially um, ran a, a $3 million uh, negative ad campaign um, in October against Dean Preston and a few other um, kind of progressive identified supervisors. But Dean Preston was kind of the most high profile target. Um, and so the, the district and, and the city were just flooded with mailers criticizing um, Dean Preston um, in sometimes kind of disingenuous terms. Uh, for instance, about various policies around homelessness and housing. Um, and it was widely reported in local media that this pack was funded by, um, at least in part, by a major Mitch McConnell donor um, and some other kind of conservatives in San Francisco. Um, and so I was not too surprised, actually, to see that 
it, it seems like that may have backfired and Dean Preston ended up winning his uh, w- winning this race probably by a, uh, a much more significant margin than he won against Valley Brown uh, last year when they faced off. So um, I think that was an, an interesting sort of uh, case study in, in how negative ads can play. Um, another interesting race that we're still watching is this Connie Chan versus Marjan Philhoor race in District 1, which is the Richmond District. Uh, that race, as we mentioned at the top, is still being decided. Um, and it's it's a matter of less than 100 votes right now. Every day at 4 o'clock, um, you know, people uh, who, are, who are following local politics log into the SF Elections portal and see, you know, where the latest dozen votes took that total. Um, and so that's going to be slow going. We probably won't find out until um, next week who, who's going to win that race. But if uh, Marjan Philhor wins that race, it's really going to change the balance of power on the Board of Supervisors. Um, we'll give Mayor London Breed another um, really close ally on the board at a time when she, she doesn't have a lot of allies. Uh, whereas if Connie Chan wins, it kind of preserves the, the status quo where she's, she's likely to be kind of allied with the progressive camp and um, maybe go against Mayor Breed on a number of, of key issues. When it comes to the propositions on this year's California ballot, there was a disconnect between how people voted in San Francisco versus how they voted statewide. Um, with voters here in the city approving several tax measures and other progressive laws, and statewide voters largely rejecting new taxes and progressive legislation. Can can we go into the specifics there a little bit? Prop 22 comes to mind. Prop 15 comes to mind. Yeah. So first off, I think it is pretty striking that voters in San Francisco um, are on track to approve every tax measure on the ballot. I think there are three of them. Um, and they they got all of those measures were opposed by the Chamber of Commerce and some other groups and kind of similar to the ones that were opposing um, Dean Preston in his supervisorial bid. And so there was these very expensive um, negative ad campaigns against those tax measures, but they, they won anyway. Um, and so I think, again, that shows maybe um, the limits of these negative campaigns and also the fact that uh, San Francisco voters are still in the mood to tax themselves and um, especially to tax uh, big business, which is, is largely what these, what these uh, tax laws are going to do. Um, and it's, it's a striking contrast to um, what's going on at the state level where this uh, really high-profile uh, reform of Prop 13, the 1978 property tax law that has um, really hampered California's ability to adequately fund its education system and a lot of other um, kind of key social services areas. Uh, Prop 15 would have would have actually uh, removed Prop 13 for large commercial property owners. Um, so it wouldn't have touched homeowners' property taxes, but it would have uh, significantly increased commercial property taxes for for people who own property more than $3 million. And it looks like, although it's still kind of close, but it looks like that is probably going to fail. Um, and that's pretty remarkable, just given that uh, California is in this uh, kind of budget crisis due to the coronavirus pandemic and um, unemployment and, and all that. And uh, But voters just really didn't have an appetite for, for that particular law. Um, and I think we saw 
a number of, of areas where, uh, you know, progressive policies were pretty resoundingly rejected by voters. Uh, another one is Prop 16, which was bringing back affirmative action in, in California, which has been illegal for several, uh, for a couple of decades. That lost. Uh, another, another bill that would have allowed, uh, or I should say ballot measure, that would have allowed cities to expand their rent control laws, um, also lost pretty resoundingly. Um, and then there's Prop 22, the law that um, Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash, and a couple other companies like that uh, wrote, and then uh, spent $200 million to, to promote uh, the most ever for a ballot measure in California. Um, and that that passed very handily. Um, and so that was seen as a huge blow to organized labor um, and to those who kind of want to, to rein in the gig economy and, and give more protections to uh, people who drive for Uber and, and do jobs like that. Um, so those those bills, I think, um, they they were a bit of a wake up call for kind of progressives in California that um, especially when you're going up against these really well-funded campaigns, um, there it's it's just a, a tough road. Um, kind of in contrast to what happened in San Francisco, where the well-funded campaigns didn't um, didn't really do anything. Voters still passed these progressive laws. Um, and then what one other note about what happened at the state level is it also could be that people are just distracted by obviously the extremely important presidential election um, by the pandemic. Um, and perhaps also just by the sheer number of ballot measures that were um, up for consideration and kind of the amount of research and thinking that um, went into it. Um, if you're really going to try to make an informed decision about all, I think, 12 state level propositions. Um, and so I think some of these some of these questions, you know, what does affirmative action actually do? What does rent control actually do? What does the gig work law actually do? It might have been too confusing for people to really um, kind of vote where, with their values on those on those questions. Um, so I think that's going to be kind of something that political observers are going to try to sort out over the next few months. Yeah, I think um, with Prop 15, I was actually talking to a friend of mine who lives uh, in Sonoma County, and he was uh, mentioning that he knew several independent farmers, a dairy guy and a, and a guy who actually grows sod. And um, he was observing that their property would be assessed at three million dollars, uh, hmm. and yet, you know, they they are what people in San Francisco might think of as a small business owner, you know, an independent farmer. But you know, land is very pricey, and uh, the the taxes, you know, on both of those properties would have been, according to my friend via these farmers, uh, would have been in the tens of thousands. Of dollars, mm. uh, you know, a, a single employee, for example, fifty thousand dollars a year or something like that. Um, and then with Prop Twenty Two, I mean, I think it comes down to political spending. I mean, those ads for Prop Twenty Two were everywhere. Yeah. Um, and regardless of where you come down in your politics, it's just kind of hard to escape that messaging. I mean, I voted against Prop 22, but there, there were moments where I was thinking seeing these ads served to me constantly. Oh, should I, should I vote for Prop 22? Wait, no, I'm not going to do it. Um, so those are, those are two things that, that I've been thinking about in the past uh, couple of days. Yeah. An interesting piece about 22 is, um, you know, as you said, the ad campaign was everywhere. And especially if you are a person who uses 
Uber or Lyft or DoorDash, the moment you open the app over the past couple months, you've got a, essentially a message about this this law, um, you know, an advertisement. And yeah. I think something we see with this is that uh, you know people really love these services and they've come to be very dependent on them. Um, you know, especially during the pandemic, these food delivery services are in, enormously popular. Um, and so people, I think, are worried about losing access to, to those kinds of things, um, which these companies implied, you know, they might actually leave California if if that if Prop 22 failed. I never really believed that. I don't think they would. But, um, you know, those services would have gotten more expensive, probably. Yeah. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, longer wait times and things like that. Um, and I think an interesting takeaway that I've been seeing online from, um, you know, people who are interested in um, Im- improving public transit and, and uh, you know, reducing California's greenhouse gas emissions is that this is kind of a, a win for, for car culture. And uh, it's yet another uh, reason for those who are trying to kind of build a, a greener um you know, less car dependent future for California to um, make those investments and give people real alternatives to using Uber and Lyft or their own personal car. Um, so I think that's kind of an interesting way to think about how um, how people are going to move forward from this. Um, of course, the other angle here is is organized labor. I think is going to have a big kind of reckoning with what yeah. to do next. And uh, it sounds like Uber and Lyft and their allies are going to start going around the country and um, proposing similar what they call third way employment policies that are um, where, where their drivers can essentially remain as independent contractors um, with a, a couple benefits rather than becoming full employees. Um, so right. it, it might be that Prop 22 kind of turns the tide on this whole conversation about what what gig work is around the country. Yeah. And, and there are, I think, like if you can imagine an industry there's going to be a gig work service for it. I know it's out there for restaurant employees. Mm-hmm. Um, it's out there for movers um, in a particularly dark um, example that we covered on the podcast a, a while ago. There, there's a, a gig service um, for eviction, mer- ser- serving eviction notices and then moving, moving people's stuff out. Um, and I think, yeah, organized labor is, very concerned that this is going to set a, a precedent where, you know, um, you know, you want a janitor, you don't hire somebody full time. You don't go through SEIU, you hire a gig worker. You want, you know, it could go as far as, as a nurse. It could go, who knows? Um, anyway, something to think about. Yeah. Um, and, uh, watch and see uh, what these companies do. Not every state has a proposition, um, system though. I think uh, Prop 22 was an example of corporations hijacking um, the proposition system to uh, do exactly sort of what it was not intended to do, which was yeah. give voice to, you know, individual citizens. Right. Right. You're talking about this the citizen initiative ballot um, measures, which which are a pretty unique feature to California politics and have often been the way that some of the most consequential. Um, laws have gotten passed like prop 13 um, right. where you know pe- people or organizations or now we're seeing companies come forward with um, ballot measures that really might not have much support at all among politicians but they're um, you know as we see with uh, several of these laws that I just mentioned uh, 
you can sometimes get there with with the vote of the people if you have the right campaign yeah Okay, well, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today, Ben. Uh, To read more about how the local election is shaping up, head to sfweekly.com. And to learn more about the history of the progressive moderate divide in San Francisco, be sure to pick up a copy of the paper on Thursday, November 12th. We're back in print, everybody. Thanks again for joining us, Ben. Thank you. Yeah, and everyone, go, go check out our news boxes and get your print copy. It's a really exciting moment for us. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's edition of the SF Weekly Podcast. The episode was produced, engineered, and recorded by me, Nick Veronin. Our theme music was composed by The Armature. For more hot takes, deep dives, and alternative views on San Francisco news, subscribe to our podcast through Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. Follow us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash sfweeklypodcast, and check out our website, sfweekly.com.